Coming up on Philosophy Talk. If it turns out that there is a God, I don't think that he's evil. I think that, that the worst you can say about him is that basically he's an underachiever. If God is so all-knowing, so all-powerful, so all-loving, why do bad things happen to good people? I've had quite a bit of tourists lately. Marital problems, professional, you name it. This is not a frivolous request. This is a ser... I'm a ser... I'm a... I've tried to be a serious man. What kind of divinity allows its believers to suffer? Life is sacred? Who said so? God? Hey, if you read history, you realize that God is one of the leading causes of death. What would God say in defense of evil? Is evil an illusion? Our guest is Andrew Pinsent from Oxford University. Good, evil, and the divine plan. Don't touch it! It's evil! Coming up on Philosophy Talk. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're here at the studios of KALW San Francisco. Continuing conversations that begin at Philosopher's Corner at Stanford, where Ken and I are professors of philosophy. Today, we're asking about good, evil, and the divine plan. Our question is this. If God knows everything... If God is all-powerful, and if God is benevolent, then why did God create a world with suffering, evil, and injustice? This is what philosophers call the problem of evil. The first, John, you know, the first and I think best statement I know is from Epicurus around 300 B.C. He, he said, if God is both able and willing to prevent evil, then whence cometh evil? Is he neither able nor willing? Then why call him God? Evil is a problem for religions, like Orthodox Christianity, that posit a perfect God. Such a God should be all-powerful or omnipotent, all-knowing or omniscient. And he should be benevolent, since being mean and uncaring is certainly an imperfection. But as that quote from Epicurus shows, the problem predates Christian philosophy and theology. But the work of actually constructing serious theodicies, that started with uh, St. Augustine. Theodicies, Ken? That's a $10 word. A theodicy is a defense against the problem of evil, an explanation of how there can be evil in a world created by a perfect God. Now, I know you're a big fan of uh, St. Augustine. Uh, do you think his theodicy actually got anywhere? Well, this may surprise you, but I think Augustine solves successfully one important aspect of the problem of evil. He shows that it's at least logically possible, not contradictory, to suppose that a perfect God created a world with suffering, sin, and injustice. But an imperfect world created by a perfect being, ah, John, that strikes me as a little like a square circle. It makes no sense. So how does your buddy Augustine get around that? Well, I think there's two basically connected ideas. Uh, the big picture defense and the free will defense. Uh, the big picture defense. I, I remember this from my Notre Dame days. It says, it starts with the idea that something ugly you know, locally, might be an essential part of a larger, more beautiful picture. A little bit of ugliness over here in this corner might make the big picture better, more aesthetically powerful. So, by analogy, maybe a little suffering makes an essential contribution to a result that's better than we would have had without the suffering. Let's take a trivial example. When I jog, I suffer a little. But the jogging makes me healthier physically, and the suffering makes me stronger mentally. 
my life with a little suffering is a better life than it would be without. So if we had the big picture, if we could see God's vast creation in one fell swoop, which of course we humans can't do, we'd see that what we take to be injustice and suffering is actually compensated for. It's a necessary part of the best overall possible world, as Leibniz likes to put it. Exactly. Then there's the free will defense, which Augustine really focused on. That adds an important point. A world with freedom in it, where God lets humans make decisions, is better than one without freedom, even if those decisions sometimes lead to pain and suffering. Okay, John, I'm willing to grant that maybe... Maybe it's logically possible that a perfect God could create some world with evil in it and injustice in it. But is it really plausible that an all-perfect, all-loving God created this world, which is so suffused with evil and injustice? Well, that's quite right. Showing that something is logically possible isn't the same as showing that it's empirically plausible. But it's an important first step. Okay, I'll grant you it's a first step, but there are so many things about our world where we just can't imagine what a loving God could have in mind. Think of the suffering of innocent children in concentration camps, or or the suffering uh, of innocent adults, for that matter. What's that got to do with perfection and free will and all that jazz? Well, I suppose if I point out to you, Ken, that you're committing the sin of pride— by supposing that you, you finite human, should be able to imagine what a perfect God had in mind, I suppose if I pointed that out to you, you wouldn't be that impressed. You're exactly right. I'd be totally unmoved. But look, I'm at least willing to admit that there's a lot more to discuss here. Such as how people of faith hold on to it, even in the face of extreme evil. Our roving philosophical reporter, Caitlin Esch, met such a person. She files this report. During El Salvador's 12-year civil war, Sister Madeline Dorsey with the Mary Knoll nuns lived among the poor. She says she saw evil firsthand. Yes, very much, very close up, very close up. Sister Madeline is 95, and she's seen some things. She helped start a jungle hospital in Bolivia. She worked to integrate the first black and white hospital in Kansas City. But perhaps her most difficult assignment was in the 1980s, counseling people during El Salvador's civil war. Innocent people, poor people, their little farms, their lands burned, taken away from them. Their crops burned because they figured they were hiding behind tall sugarcane, anything to damage their lives. Sister Madeline says there wasn't much she could do except be with people in their grief. She could no longer provide medical services. That was seen as subversive. So she lived among people who were there one day, disappeared the next. She witnessed their lives, their pain. Amidst all the suffering, Sister Madeline says there were saintly, courageous people, like Oscar Romero, the Archbishop of San Salvador. His life was depicted in the 1989 film, Romero. The farmers and peasants that you kill are your own brothers and sisters. He was the voice of the people. He was fearless. He spoke out on their behalf. His last sermon given at the cathedral when he addressed the lineup of soldiers with their guns against the main doors coming into the uh, cathedral in San Salvador, he said, stop killing your brothers. No soldier is obliged to obey an order contrary to the law of God. And the next day, they took his life, as you know, one shot into the heart. That was in March of 1980. Later that year, Sister Madeline would witness even greater evil. 
four of her fellow missionaries were raped and murdered by officers of the Salvadoran National Guard. For days after the women disappeared, no one knew what had happened to them. Then Sister Madeline got a report of a peasant who'd been forced to bury four women. Sister Madeline went to identify the bodies. We got to the site uh, just as the graves were going to be opened. It was a tragedy to see them coming out. Jean was the first brought up, and her face was partially blown away. Um, apparently, they'd all been shot in the head, and she must have turned her face, or they destroyed it. I don't know which. We couldn't go too close, and then we fell down on our knees and prayed. Sister Madeline thinks back on those days as a resurrection moment. On the Friday, the women were brutally killed. Saturday, they were entombed, and on Sunday, they rose. She takes comfort in that. Yes, their battered bodies were there, and abused, definitely abused. Um, but they were with God. Sister Madeline says there's no question evil abounds in this world, but she does not see it as part of God's plan. I don't think evil is ever God's plan, ever. I think we, human beings, take sides, and I'm going to say we take sides with the devil. Sister Madeline sees all conflicts as a battle between good and evil, God versus the devil, and she's devoted her life to helping people. I think evil in times like these has the upper hand, but that's not, that's not in God's plan. I think that's why good people remain with poor suffering people and try to help them come through their ills or seek justice for them and peace for them. Seek justice is exactly what Sister Madeline has tried to do. She's testified at several trials, and in 2012, a federal immigration judge ordered a retired Salvadoran general in Florida deported so the men responsible can start answering for their sins. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Caitlin Esch. Thank you, Caitlin, for that, for that uh, moving report about how people like Sister Madeline not only retain their faith, but have it deepened in the face of evil. I'm John Perry. With me is my Stanford colleague, Ken Taylor. And today we're talking about good, evil, and the divine plan. We're joined now by Father Andrew Pensant. He's a professor of theology and religion at the University of Oxford, he's, where he's also research director of the Ian Ramsey Center for Science and Religion. Father Andrew, welcome to Philosophy Talk. Yes, good, good morning, California. I hope you can hear me. Oh, we can hear you fine. Uh, Father Andrew, I understand that earlier in your career you were a scientist, uh, a physicist for that matter. How did you get from thinking about quarks and spin to thinking about God and evil? Yes, I spent um, several happy years um, doing particle physics. In fact, I came to Stanford University at one time and saw the beautiful people of Stanford and uh, visited the Stanford Linear Accelerator Center. It's all great fun, but in the end, uh, I found people more interesting than particles and the problems of good and evil and theology and the meaning of life. That's, uh, that's a wonderful thing to spend your life uh, involved with. So for, for many would-be believers, people who would really like to believe, uh, evil and suffering are, are big barriers to belief. Uh, not seeing how this world, how could that be the creation of a perfect God? That, that problem blocks their faith. Uh, and I'm sure you, you meet many such, such people. Uh, what advice but, can you or do you give them? 
well, this is not a, a, a trivial um, problem. And it was, it was recognized in the Old Testament, of course, in, in the book of Job. It's all about the story of a good man suffering. So I think anyone who gives a, a trivial or a facile answer um, is, is just, just inadequate. Um, but even to begin addressing the problem, you've got to have at least two distinctions. And I'll make one little criticism of the title of your show. So um, uh, the, uh, the first distinction is between what you might call acceptable and unacceptable or good and bad suffering. So there's some kind of suffering that no one really has a problem with. If you're training for the Olympics, you expect to suffer. In fact, if there was no suffering involved, somehow the achievement would be taken away. And there's also a kind of suffering that everyone would accept in the case of uh, where someone does something really evil. And let's um, say, like the case just being talked about just now, that Sister Madeline was talking about, um, you know, you'd want those, the perpetrators to be punished, and that would cause suffering. In fact, a world without that would be regarded as something um, w which is defective. So there's some suffering which is acceptable. But there's, a, there's also the, the, the suffering we have problems with. And I suggest it's, it's one of two things. Suffering that seems to undermine our flourishing or deprive us of the desires of our heart or both. I think that's where the, the real issue um, comes in. Um, <clears throat> one criticism about the title of your program, Good uh, Evil and the Divine Plan. I, I don't like the term divine plan. I, um, I'm much more prepared to believe that God constantly rewrites the plan. It's like um, uh, playing chess with someone who wants you to win, and we keep making the wrong, the wrong moves, and, uh, and the other player keeps compensating. That seems to be the story of the Old Testament, the constant human mistakes, and a kind of re, uh, a steadily rewritten plan. But, but now, in, in that respect, as I understand things, <clears throat> you would differ from Augustine, who thinks God is outside of... Uh, time and space, and and this idea of his interacting, and although it definitely has Old Testament credentials, doesn't seem to fit very well with that. Well, this touches another program. Uh, sorry, another <laughs> issue we could almost devote a whole program to, which is can God answer prayer? Can God change? And mm -hmm. so on. Um, uh, in terms of, of contemporary philosophy, the, the, the best way I think of expressing it is God doesn't change in time, but God is not the same in all possible worlds. So there's a world in which, for example, Hannah prays for a child in the Old Testament and she gets a child, and there's a world in which she doesn't pray for a child and she doesn't get a child. So, so um, from our perspective, um, I think the safest way of um, thinking about these things is God, yes, does change and mm -hmm. uh, can rewrite the plan. I, I, I think, I, okay, I, I, I get that idea, but I, I'm still puzzled and we're going to have to dig into this a little more deeply, well, a lot more deeply. I'm still puzzled because, okay, a God who says, I'm, I've got this ex design for the universe, but I'm going to put freedom in there so that human beings can muck it up, and I'm going to have to constantly <laughs> readjust it so that it works out well. I mean, ah, jeepers, why did he put us, why did he make these beings, who imperfect beings who could muck up his perfect plan, and then he has to constantly be a fireman putting out fires but we'll we'll dig into that okay uh, a little more deeply after the break okay. you're listening to philosophy talk today we're asking about good evil and the divine plan or non-plan our guest is father andrew penson from oxford university famine disease war murder a necessary part of the best of all possible worlds or a convincing disproof of a benevolent god disease famine and philosophy when Philosophy Talk continues. Born with bad luck or born into a world where evil is part of God's plan? 
I'm John Perry. This is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Ken Taylor, and we're questioning good, evil, and the divine plan. Our guest is Father Andrew Pinson from the University of Oxford. So, Father Andrew, I'm going to grant, for the sake of argument, that a great deal of evil comes from the free choice of human beings, and that the free choice of human beings is that the is just the price God is willing to pay. I mean, he loves us and all that sort of stuff. But look, couldn't he have created a world with plenty of freedom, but a lot less pain and suffering? I mean, as Hume said, couldn't he just occasionally intervene and drown a few despots at birth? I mean, you know, just knock off Hitler. Or, or, and do kidney stones have to hurt so much? Couldn't he have prevented them from hurting so much? Well, it's very, it's very strange. It's a very modern kind of question. Um, could uh, why do bad things happen to good people, and why is it why are things so bad? Curiously enough, in the early Middle Ages, they used to ask the opposite question: um, Why do good things happen uh, to good people? Um, and this is the, this is the reason behind it. Uh, they used to say, "Well, if um, suffering is connected with becoming uh, holy and good and reaching heaven one day, and if we don't have enough of that, uh, we might not get there." So they used to really panic a little bit if they weren't suffering enough. So um, the question has changed over over the course of time. But that's what we'd expect, right? I mean, given your background in physics, uh, the way you, you thought about physics uh, or think about physics, the way that people at Slack think about physics, differs a lot from the way that even Einstein thought about physics, which differed away yeah. a lot from the way Newton thought. So religiously, wouldn't we have made progress, and wouldn't this modern way of putting the question be a pretty good way of putting it? Well, one thing we, we accept in, in modern physics and modern way of looking at the world is that it's got its own kind of causation. And um, we think if God has created a world in which there's what we call secondary causation, in which things can cause and change outcomes, uh, um, then in a sense, yes, this is part of the price that God pays, a certain amount of disorder. Um, there's a very interesting line in the Our Father, the most famous um, prayer of, of uh, traditional Christianity, um, and the line is, you know, uh, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So uh, the corollary of that is that God's will is not done on earth, uh, or not perfectly at the moment. And um, uh, so with the spontaneity, voluntary action, free will, these, these things, if you like, um, muck up or produce outcomes that God uh, would not, uh, would not um, wish to happen. But Father, okay, I want to I, I go back to the things you said about the medievals and before that, I guess. I mean, I can mm. sort of understand where they're coming from. But mm. that that's but that's if you already buy into something. If you already buy into uh, like this life here is just a little segment, a little tiny initial segment of your true whole life, and most of your true whole life is going to be spent if you're deserving in union with the divine, then this little life is a little testing ground for you. And the suffering and how you bear up under the suffering is a test of whether you meet God's test. But if I'm outside and I'm trying to convince myself of this. Uh, of this uh, that I should believe, that's not going to be very moving, right? Because I'm skeptical about this eternal salvation and union with God in the first place. And you say, well, but see, this suffering is just a, a little ticket that you have to purchase. Okay, but 
but but you, you can't have it both ways. I, I think the, the the challenge against um, religious faith from people who who don't have that faith is that um, somehow the religious faith is not coherent, or uh, claims we make about God and nature of the world don't fit together. Um, but that's that. Uh, if you're asking for a defence based on those claims, and then you have to accept the premises of those claims. So uh, I have to be if I'm giving a defence, I have to also be allowed to use the same um, sort of premises that you could be used um, that you could use in order to criticise my position. So you know, so so f from the world view in which I have to give a defence that's coherent, then um, that would include other things. It includes notions like salvation, eternity, and so on. Well, if you go back, let's go back to our analogy with with uh, relativistic physics and Newtonian physics. Now, as I understand it, which isn't very well, I'm sure, compared to you, but uh, Newtonian physics wasn't shown to be incoherent or contradictory. By making enough special assumptions and adjustments here and there, uh, they could account for all the phenomena Einstein came up with. But at a certain point, it just seemed to people, isn't it just going to work better overall, given the evidence, to accept this this view. Now, a, a scientist can do both things at the same time. They can work eight hours a day trying to make Newton's theory work, but they can also, in the evenings, think, but is really that the best theory? Now, isn't that the position, I mean, I'm speaking for myself, that a lot of believers over the years have found themselves in? Yes, I can work hard to see how this all can be made to work out, given heaven and hell and the devil, I think, has to come into it. But then the question remains, uh, is that really the best overall theory, given the evidence I've got? Yeah, there's a slight um, kind of disanalogy between the two cases, because in the case of um, a model of physics, a model for the quantitative behavior of the world, the measurement of the world, um, uh, you can put that to one side, it's, it's uh, or try out different models and so on. Um, uh, issues of God and um, faith—they go—they go a lot deeper. That one's whole, one's whole life, in a sense, is um, can be founded on these things. So. It's a, little, it's a little bit different. It's, it's, it's not so easy to sort of take those things and sort of sort of um, uh, sort of set them to one side and put something else in place and so on. It's it's, it's a harder it's a harder task, I think. Father, I, but I, I want to uh, I want to go back to again. I, I I think I understand what you were saying to me earlier, but I want to try something out. Okay, I kind of grant that what people call the logical problem of evil is it logically possible for a loving benevolent God to create a universe suffused with suffering and evil and injustice and all that. I kind of grant that you can solve that by having, like, for example, this view that, well, our life here is just a little tiny sojourn. It's like the little testing ground, and the, and, and, but this, it does, so it doesn't really matter. I, I kind of grant that that's logically coherent, but I still wonder, gosh, why, why does God have to do that? And why should uh, I care or believe about a God who says, well, I'm going to put you to the... I had a theologian once tell me, on this air, I, I said to that theologian, I said, uh, what should a Jew who endures Hitler's concentration camp and holds up and doesn't despair, and when he meets his maker, she meets his maker, what should that... And says, God, why did you do that? And, and, and God, what is that person supposed to say when he meets... And that theologian, Sir Richard Swinburne, said to me, He's supposed to say, thank you, God. Thank you, God, for giving me the opportunity to show you what I've made of, to hold up well under, under the most intense pressure. Thank you, God. 
Okay, can, can I just um, uh, I, I, the way it's being phrased? I, I don't quite agree with. Okay. So, so when you talk about um, a testing ground, you know, like, it sounds like a, a sort of a quality assurance um, production line for a silicon chip or something. And that's that's not how uh, Christians would regard um, this life. Uh, C.S. Lewis expressed it, I think, very well. He said, "In this life, we write the title page of what we are to be in eternity, and um, God is, is seeing what kind of eternity we want to have, if you like." So um, that, that's a slightly different way of. of of, of thinking about it, but your, your example of, of the, the Jew in the concentration camp and what he would say to God is a very interesting case, in fact, um, Victor Klemperer. Now, Victor Klemperer um, suffered appallingly under the, under the Nazis, and he, he lost his academic position, I think, in 1935. Um, and he, he, he felt he'd been deprived of the chance to really flourish. He wanted to write a great academic book. Um, but secretly, during the time of the, uh, the Nazi regime, he, he kept a diary. And that diary has become one of the most important documents now of, of the Nazi era. He did actually achieve the desire of his heart to write a great academic book, but not, but not um, quite the way he expected. So um, even these... Even though a person might not be aware of it at the time, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that that person will not be able to flourish eventually and even achieve the desires of his or her heart. That, that's a deep and penetrating answer. I, I want to go back a little bit, though, to the analogy uh, <laughs> I gave you before. Uh, let's shift to philosophy. I, as a philosopher, I'm a compatibilist. Uh, I work, you know, uh, it's important to me that compatibilism is true. I try to work out that that's for our listeners. That's a view about free will and uh, and determinism or free will and God's uh, uh, knowledge. But but it's it's not an existential problem for me. I, I don't really think it's important that I really find out the truth of that. I just want to do my best with the theory that I came up with. Hmm. But it's, so it seems to me, in so, insofar as you're right, there's a disanalogy between the physicist trying to decide between relativity theory, uh, his day, uh, defending Newton, his day job, and whether he should be believe relativity theory. Uh, and the believer, I think there is a disanalogy, but I think it goes the other way from what you say. I mean, I can't put aside the question of, of whether I can, uh, you know, really make sense of what I'm the beliefs I'm basing my whole whole life on so so it seems to me that I, I appreciate that that lots of people like like sister Madeline people who face evil in a way I haven't find their faith deepened but I don't I, I'd like to yeah. figure and, and how can I ignore that problem yeah it's um uh, it's interesting that the, the whole problem of, of suffering can be approached from an atheistic perspective and a theistic perspective, and it's a very, very different way of, of doing it. Um, you know, the, the atheist sees, sees a logical problem. Um, the, the theist um, just wants to know why. It, it's not a question of doubting God's existence. He wants to know why this is happening. That's, that's the book of Job in the Old Testament. Interestingly, um, you, you know, the, the theist is not... You, you don't necessarily have to. You don't necessarily get to the end of the reasoning and um, you know, d disbelieve God, but, but you may not yet get an answer to the to the divine plan. So, it's it's not always. Um it's a it's a problem that can be can be um, addressed from very different perspectives, and it's not a, it's not necessarily a game changer for for belief in God. Well, true, but there's the atheist, there's the theist, and then there's the teenager in all of us, the one who hasn't mm. made up his mind, and that's the right. one that I think the problem of evil is the big problem for. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. We're talking about good evil and the divine plan with Father Andrew Penson from Oxford University. We'd love to know what you think. And we have Peter from San Francisco on the line. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Peter. Uh, yes, uh, good morning. I wonder how the, if the good father could explain how a 
loving God could require a man to sacrifice his son to show his uh, his allegiance <laughs> God or whatever. Uh, our caller is talking probably about Abraham, who was uh, told by God that he had to sacrifice Isaac, and then the Isaac was given a last-minute reprieve. And this is a topic that Kierkegaard wrote long and to some people quite convincingly well about. eloquently i'm not sure convincingly but the problem you know uh, god tells abraham uh, uh go and sacrifice your son kierkegaard says this is a great paradox the the ethical name for what god asks of abraham is murder your son of course uh, the big picture to start with of course the, the son isaac survives um and it's very easy to look back on those th- things and think gosh that's all very primitive we actually do uh, i would say sacrifice children today um to expediency and, and other things but that's another big issue um uh, with the case of abraham uh, there's a bigger picture of his whole life so um abraham is is called the father of faith but actually he keeps messing up so uh, when he's asked to leave his land and his family he brings lot with him and that that turns out to be a bit of a disaster and then he appoints a steward instead of having uh, a son and then he has a son by a slave girl instead of um, by his wife um, and all the time he keeps hedging his bets now the test of Abraham uh, can be interpreted as um, Abraham being asked um, do you trust God do you trust that uh, Isaac will, will survive and flourish and become the father of a great people um, even though it seems naturally impossible and um, he, Abraham had trusted God in the past when it suited him, and now it doesn't suit him. So it's, um, it, it's a question of whether he's going to put his trust completely in, in, God, in God in the particular circumstance of that very unusual life. And Father, so, in contradiction, mm. I guess, I mean, okay. this is how Kierkegaard takes it, in contradiction to everything that reason and ethics and the universal, as Kierkegaard puts it, right, uh, everything that ethical life requires of us, God says, I'm going to ask you to suspend that, and you're supposed to do it, and that Abraham somehow is able to do it, right, is the great, he's supposed to be the great exemplar of faith. Do you take faith to be as irrational as as Kierkegaard takes it to be? He takes it to be utterly irrational. No, I I, I do not. Um, But uh, to understand Abraham's decision, you have to understand Abraham's life, and um, he's already sacrificed one son. Uh, he, he drove his other son out into the wilderness. Um, that was the Ish- Ishmael, the, uh, the son of Hagar. But that suited him. And um, Abraham's being asked to resolve um, a conflict in his own heart. And um, yes, it's, it's, it looks as if Isaac can't survive. Uh, Abraham is assured, however, by God that he will survive and become the, the father of a great people. So it's a kind of supernatural trust. And in fact, that's exactly what happens. And um, Abraham is, is promised, of course, his descendants will be more than the stars of heaven. And um, that is actually what happened. Okay, so look, so look, the Kierkegaardian view of faith is as irrational. And we have to take this leap of faith in the, in, the, in the face of, you know, doubt and anguish and despair. We can get to what he calls resignation, but reason can get us to resignation, but it can't get us all the way to faith. Now, you might no. think that the problem of evil is something that we can never rationally get our head around and that we just have to take this leap of faith. Believe that God has a plan. You can never have any evidence for the plan, but just believe. Is that how you want us to approach well, it? Well, plan, remember, isn't quite the right well, word. Well, has, <laughs> has a sort of plan. Has a sort of combat. Has a sort of combat strategy. strategy. strategy yeah. Constantly rewritten plan. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of like my GPS, who keeps okay. giving me good directions, and I screw <laughs> yes. it up, and it but very calmly comes back and says, please make nice. a U-turn. Nice. Yes. But I'm asking yes. you whether you think we need to take a leap of faith or, or a leap of faith in a Kierkegaardian way that takes us beyond reason, or can reason satisfy itself that, okay, I, I can do this? 
I can believe in the face well, of this. Well, it's 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 the kind of faith is not um uh, uh it's not it's not about belief in an everyday an everyday sense. It's it's the root of of what we call a second person relationship with God, an I thou relationship with God. And getting close to God is is difficult. Getting allowing God to come close to us is difficult. The crucible of suffering, um, uh, history suggests, is often the way it happens. And here's an example um, that Max Hastings used in one of his um, accounts of the Second World War. So there's a Red Army soldier who's never been taught how to pray. And when she comes under fire from, um, from the guns of uh, the Nazi armies, uh, suddenly she starts making up prayers. So from God's point of view, that's actually a good outcome. Um, uh, what does it take to get close to us? Uh, sometimes it's only crisis, the crucible. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. We're talking about good, evil, and the divine plan with Father Andrew Penson from the University of Oxford. In our next segment, we'll get further into whether the abstract ruminations of philosophers can provide actual comfort in the face of real pain and suffering. Do you think God made the right choice in giving humans freedom? Or would you rather be more constrained but in a happier, less suffer-infused world? When Philosophy Talk continues. What kind of divinity lets its believers suffer evil? The topic is good, evil, and the divine plan, or at any rate, interactive strategy. I'm John Perry. This is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. Our, our guest is Father Andrew Penson from the University of Oxford, and we've got a caller on the line, Gina from Berkeley. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Gina. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, I have a question for Father Andrew. My background is also um, in physics and astrophysics, actually. My question is um, about evil towards children, in particular, who are completely innocent. Um, in the story of Abraham and Isaac, I actually find um, Ishmael and his mother Hagar the most sympathetic, and um, I also think often of... Um, Ivan Karamazov, who says, no matter you know how just and good God is, how can he accept a God who allows a child to suffer even for one moment? And so um, maybe you could sort of pull those together, and I'll take that off here. Thank you. Father Andrew, were you able to hear that question? Yes, I, I did. Thank Very you. good question. Thank you. Um, I wish I could give such a succinct answer. Um, <laughs> I, th I think the, uh, yeah, it, it, it will be, uh, there's a problem with debating all these things in the abstract. It can sound cold and heartless, and I think um, the only, uh, the most convincing uh, kind of response is, if there is a response uh, to these kinds of problems, is, is the, the particular stories. And um, we have to do what philosophers do quite a lot, that they, they tend to be a bit guilty about, we have to tell stories. And, um, you know, with the, uh, in, in the case of, 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 of Christian history, it's, it's the stories of, of, of the saints, and even the child saints who suffer. Um, uh, in the end, uh, what's extraordinary is, is this kind of flourishing um, that they have even long after their death. Um, and the fact that, insofar as we're able to tell these things, they often get the desires of their hearts. Now, um, here's an example of a saint I'm very, I'm very fond of. It's um, Saint Therese of Lisieux. And she wasn't exactly a child, but she was very young when she died. She died at, um, young by modern standards, she was died at 24 of tuberculosis. And she wanted to be a missionary. She never left her convent, and she wrote one exercise book. This would seem to be a pretty stunted life, 
and um, a bit of a failure. Now, when I came back to Oxford University in 2009, um, a small part of her bones um, were visiting, uh, was visiting Oxford, and we had um, thousands of people coming to, to pray in the church where the bones were. And the police are holding back the crowds and so on. And this, this is amazing. This woman has become a successful missionary in the world. She just happens to be dead. Um, but she got the desires of her heart, but not always in the, not perhaps in the way that she expected. So it's, it, the big picture does matter, but it's got to be a concrete big picture. It's got to be in particular um, particular stories, particular um, lives that we, that we know of. Perhaps if I could, if I could um, give one other example, because this, this touches me. So um, in the year 2000, I was, I was a priest training in Rome, and I had the privilege of serving the Mass um, for Thomas More. He was declared the patron saint of politicians. And um, I was given the privilege of carrying, <laughs> yes. Was, yes, that, was that a good uh, thing uh, for him? <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, along with lawyers, actually. So, so this is good. Uh, they got a powerful saint there. So... Um, so I carried the cross into St. Peter's Square. On my left, there were two figures I recognized from the news. One was Madeleine Albright, and the other was Mikhail Gorbachev. And I was amazed. I thought the, the, the last general secretary of the Soviet Union came to a mass to honor Thomas More's patron saint of politicians. And, um, uh, but when More died, uh, he would have seemed to be on his own, a, a complete failure. He didn't seem to get everything. He, died in the uh, he was locked in the tower. Uh, most of his friends deserted him, and he had his head cut off. So... You know, the big picture does does matter, and it's what's what's amazing is the, is the fruitfulness of some of these lives uh, in in the long term. Well, uh, Father, I'm I'm loving talking to you. You you think of things quite differently from me, uh, and rather than object or try to come to agreement, I want to spend a, a minute exploring some issues that really interest me. Sure. Uh, going back to Augustine uh, uh, and f free will. Now, now Augustine, I mean, based on my unscholarly and inept reading seems to feel like God came to think he'd made a mistake. He gave Adam a kind of free will that didn't work out. Uh, and then after Adam, he gave us uh, uh, some lesser kind of free will. Uh, if Adam wasn't going to obey God, our bodies weren't going to obey our minds, is the way some people put it. Hmm. Is, is it is, do you think Augustine was right about that, or do I have Augustine right? Do we have a kind of a deficient kind of free will, which wasn't what God really had in mind when he created the whole place? So that, that's, that's, that's a very good point. Um, uh, just to um, clarify this issue of freedom, it's very, it's very tempting to think that freedom is sort of something we add on to what we are as human beings. Um, that wouldn't be the way that um, Thomas Aquinas, for example, thinks of it. If God takes away our freedom, we just, we just cease to be. We wouldn't be the kinds of beings that we are if we weren't causes of our own action. So... Um, uh, so, so it's not it's not an it's not an optional extra for what it is to be a human being. It's certainly not an optional extra if we're, if we're to be loving beings, because you, without without freedom, you can't love. That's that's um, uh, it, it would just be a caricature. But in the case of Augustine, he's picking, what he's picking up on is is the fact as we get closer to God, we actually gain we gain a, a kind of freedom over ourselves as well. Uh, there's a kind of harmony. So. Um, as as we go into darkness, if you were, of sin or of vice, um, we, we begin to become diso internally disordered. We, we both love and hate at the same time um, the thing we're addicted to. So um, I think that's what he's picking up on. But Father, Augustine, I mean, but the problem with that is that the, the first humans, by the story, were as close to God as one could be. And they still did this <laughs> yes. thing that yeah, has it's fascinating. Yeah, it's fascinating. Yes. But I want to ask you yes. about something else. Look, I love the stories. I love the ins inspiring stories. 
you know, and I, I lived this, I tried to believe for a long time, and I, right. and I gave it up. And I once said to my father, we were talking about the problem of evil, and he said, haven't you ever read Job, son? I said, yeah, yeah I've read Job. <laughs> and he, well, you've got all these questions, but I'm going to say to you what God said to Job. Basically, he put it in very colorful language. Where the, <laughs> he, where the heck were you when, were I, you? Cre- yes, when I created this vast thing, dude? Like, how yes. dare you? But I just don't, I just don't. A God who says... That's a sin of pride argument. Yes, I know. A God who says, trust me, don't question me. Uh, I've got a huge comprehensive plan, although I don't really have a huge comprehensive plan by your lights, because I put Hitler in there, and I know he's going to muck things up, but I'm going to make the adjustments. But too late to save you from his crematorium. I mean, how am I supposed to? I just can't get my head around such a God. It's worse than Dostoevsky has one of the Karamazov brothers. It's much worse. It's not just a, it's generations and generations of human suffering unredeemed. Because look, look. Jesus doesn't come along until pretty late in human history, right? And 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 you can't get redeemed in this from this suffering unless you take the the one way. So all this unredeemed human suffering, God created this for what reason? Come well, on, just, come on, make me feel that there's the you know uh, that he's not just giving me the finger and saying, "Don't dare you question me, boy," because that's what the Job story seems to me to say. Well, it's uh, the, the story of Job. It's uh, there's a subtlety with language. When, he's, when God says, "Where are you?" Um, that's actually the very similar question he asked to Adam in in the story of the Garden of Eden. Because the first, very first question after the fall is, "Where are you?" Which is a very funny question for God to ask, because presumably God <laughs> can't lose anything. So, what's going on here? And um, uh, the way I would interpret it is, it's a kind of freezing over of the heart. The heart is uh, no longer responsive to God. Um, there's an image I've sometimes used. It's not uh, uh, careful not to be misinterpreted, but it's, it's a kind of a spiritual autism. It's like as if we're we're put into a state where we don't respond properly to God spiritually, and breaking through to that is 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 hard. And God may permit a certain amount of suffering to to to, to break that through to melt our hearts. So in the story of Job, it doesn't look as if there's an answer. But what's interesting at the beginning of of the book, he's really a kind of religious prig if i put it like that so so he starts off doing all his religious duties right and god blesses him uh, i'll do this for god god will do this for me but by the end of the book it's um he says i want to see the face of god i want to uh, love with god the things that god loves it's it's actually uh, and actually gets he gets new children his, his children have died at the beginning of the book he gets new children at the end of the book but father let me interrupt you i, yes. I just okay. I, I just i really want to challenge you a little bit here okay sure because <laughs> you know, uh, uh you know i didn't get to do this to priest at notre dame <laughs> Go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> but, uh, look, I suppose I am uh, deeply sympathetic to humanity. And I, and I t- survey the vast amount of human suffering over the whole human adventure. It's an immeasurable amount of suffering, as Nietzsche puts it. And if one could endure this, he says, you'd have the humanity of a god. But the question is, can I endure it? I open my heart to humanity and its suffering. Okay. And I, I want to redeem that suffering. You say, oh, God, in the end, but, but, but this plan that I can't comprehend, that is allowed to be interrupted <clears throat> by the Hitlers, right, and then God's going to make some adjustments sometime. How, how, am I, that, how am I supposed to get into an I-thou relationship with that God, and especially if he won't reveal his strategy, his plan, and all that stuff? Well, um, coming back to what I said at the beginning, the, the crucial thing is... Um, does all the suffering that comes our way does it ultimately under, does it ultimately undermine our flourishing does it deprive us of the desires of our heart or both and um 
what I was in, what, what I suggest in many cases we just don't know because we don't know the full story of a human life from the inside each individual human life in some of the interesting stories and and that we do know of or have some aspect insights into which for me would be some of the stories of the heroic saints um, what's interesting is that despite the suffering there is this flourishing and they they fulfill the desires of their hearts not always in a way that they expect so that gives me hope yeah, the one last thought about the desires of the heart. Now, I remember reading at Notre Dame, the Divine <coughs> Comedy, and in the Inferno, mm. it says yes. something uh, at the gates of hell, this place is divor- is, uh, is forged Sacred by love. divine love or love. something like that. That's it, yes. And I, yes. And, I, and I struggled and struggled to understand what that could possibly mean, but the, my teacher said it meant God so loves us that he will give us what we most desire, and if we most desire eternal damnation, he's giving us that out of love. I don't get that. <laughs> well, uh, you know, pe- people, uh, uh, I guess, to put it slightly differently, you know, people who, d- who don't want God will not be forced to spend eternity with him. I think that's, that's partly what Dante is saying. What's interesting is not everyone suffers in hell. Um, but, but, but to get back to, the, to, to a question Ken raised. Uh, uh, but in the, uh, in, the, in, the, in the case of limbo, they're not, yeah. uh, they're not actually suffering. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. but, uh, but mm-hmm. you know, they're not getting their heart's desire either, are they? I mean, a lot of good people uh, that before Jesus came along are, are, are not going to make it. Um, actually, that's not quite true. Well, not, well, at least not not in um, uh, mainstream Christianity. Um, when um, uh, there are several verses where Jesus talks about you know, those who've come before him um, being in the kingdom of heaven, including Moses and Elijah, for example. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, certainly not the, the the gates are not sort of uh, closed before then. Or right, the upri- they, they can be open. The upright pagans and all that are are in are in purgatory or something, isn't that right? In Dante's vision, um, some of them were in limbo. A few of them made it to heaven. Uh, yeah, but uh, a bunch of those, the people that did came before Jesus, are just in you know the worst place, aren't they? Because you know they were debauchers and all this sort of stuff. But they weren't offered the one true way out, which is another thing that really bothers me about God. Why didn't he? I just don't get it. Yeah, I think this is actually the um, the issue I find most challenging. So, um, uh, d- does everyone get the same chance? Um, I, the, the, tr- the traditional teaching of Christianity is that everyone has sufficient grace for salvation. But um, whether it's so easy living in, say, uh, an as an Aztec environment where mm-hmm. they um, uh, they sacrifice people by throwing down uh, pyramids is 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 uh, it's not so easy to answer. On that difficult <laughs> note, <laughs> Father Andrew, I'm going to thank you for joining us. It's been a it's been a really uh, fascinating conversation. Thank you very much. Thank Our you. guest has been Father Andrew Pensant. He's a professor of theology and religion at the University of Oxford. He's uh, the research director of the Ian Ramsey Center for Science and Religion. So, John, this is deep, hard, difficult stuff. What are you thinking today? I, I'm thinking, as I often think at the end of our programs, that that uh, it, it's a big world with minds of very different sorts approaching the same problems in very different ways, and I'm humbled by the intelligence of people who believe things that seem to me completely unlikely. Yeah, completely unlikely. Well, that's how uh, completely unlikely. You didn't say completely irrational. I mean, I do think you could find a way to have a kind of coherent system of belief a sort of logically coherent system of belief uh, you got to include the afterlife and all that mm-hmm. sort of stuff but whether it's plausible that question we started out with I still don't get my head around that but you know what John this conversation continues on our blog the blog.philosophytalk.org where our motto is cogito ergo blogo I think therefore I blog you can also follow our tweets on Twitter and you can find out more by visiting our very very active Facebook page
Now we get the fastest word on good and evil from Ian Scholes, the 60-second philosopher. Ian Scholes, not being a church-going man, issues of theodicy don't often occur to me. The question, if God exists, why is there evil, doesn't really resonate. There are many possible answers, after all. God doesn't like us. God has a sick sense of humor. God doesn't care about us one way or the other. God cares about us, but his attention wanders, kind of like owning rabbits or an ant farm. God is not the nice person he says he is. Of course, I'm not thinking about great evils. I'm thinking of, I don't know, lying on your job application, looking up the answer when you're doing the crossword, card counting in Vegas, telling your kid there's a Santa Claus, and so forth. These do not require the presence of guilt. Other evil actions may require guilt, though many of these are debatable. I mean, running a red light, is that evil? It could be, I guess, if you hit somebody and run away. Is cheating on your spouse evil? Well, what if your spouse was the result of a forced marriage, and the person you're cheating with is the person of your dreams? Is gossip evil? Taking drugs to win a game? Evil can be relative. Meat-eating, for instance, wearing leather, driving cars, voting for Obama, joining the Tea Party. There's always some moralistic tongue-clucker out there to tell you that eating chicken is wrong or that owning a machine gun is a God-given right. As for the big-ticket evils out there, like serial killing or mass murder, don't most of them require the presence of some belief? The belief that Jews are holding back Germany, for example, or that false consciousness is keeping communism from transforming the planet, or that God wants you to decapitate brunettes. Those who believe in a merciful God have a hard time reconciling that with Charles Manson or Hitler. Not being a believer, I'm more bothered by the existence of evil than the ambiguity of a ubiquitous good. Besides, there are many gods out there, the god of Christianity, Islam, and Judaism, but also the dead gods of ancient Greece and Scandinavia, the gods of Hinduism, Krishna, and H.P. Lovecraft. In Kahulu's world, I can say with confidence, humans don't really matter. At any rate, I would suggest that evil, by and large, is a human province, and God doesn't really enter into it, except as an excuse to commit it, or a reason not to. But if you're going to believe in an all-powerful God, infinite, merciful, the whole nine yards, there are other troublesome mortal matters. Why do we have disasters, floods, earthquakes, or plagues? Why do we get sick in the first place? Why do we suffer? Why do we die? Why do we know enough even to ask these questions? Why do we have bodies? Why do we have time? Can't we just bask in God's eternal presence and say bye-bye to this corrupt mortal flesh? I mean, come on. Feeling that, why isn't everything puppies and sunshine and true love and chocolate? Riddle me that, oh wise ones. I'll be over here in the corner cheating on my income tax. I gotta go. The Wisdom of the Ages, in a nutshell, from Ian Scholes, the 60-second philosopher. Philosophy Talk is a presentation of Ben Manila Productions and the trustees of Leland Stanford Junior University. Copyright 2013. Our executive producer is David Demarest. The program is produced by Devin Strolovich. Laura McGuire is our director of research. Thanks also to Chris Hoff, Merle Kessler, Dave Millar, Jimmy Tobin, Itran, Carola Kreitmar, and Mark Stone. Support for Philosophy Talk comes from the Templeton Foundation. And also from various groups at Stanford University, the Friends of Philosophy Talk, and the members of KALW San Francisco, where our program originates. The views expressed or misexpressed on this program do not necessarily represent the opinions of Stanford University or of our other funders. Not even when they're true and reasonable. The conversation continues on our website, philosophytalk.org. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. Thank you for listening. And thank you for thinking.